Greetings and welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibilities. If you happen to be in South Florida, you may be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the first new show of the new year. I hope you had a fantastic New Year's Eve and that your year is off to a great start. Mine certainly is, but I'm going to begin by reaching back, way, way, way back to 2020, when I did a podcast episode with Jesse Walker about a book that he wrote way back in 2013. It was called The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Reader. It is still called that. And in it, he sorts conspiracies into five broad categories, the enemy above, the enemy below, the external threat, the internal threat, and the conspiracy to help us. If you wanted to personify each of these conspiracies, the enemy above would be the Rockefellers, the enemy below the unwashed masses conspiring to overthrow the system. The external threat is Russia subverting our democracy. The internal threat is all those people around you who believe in QAnon. The conspiracy to help us, or the benevolent conspiracy, are those aliens who watch our nuclear arsenal and try to prevent total war. And yes, that is a conspiracy that a lot of people believe in. I should note that whenever I refer to a conspiracy theory, I like to do so without coming down one way or another, uh, at least not on the general idea of conspiracy theories. There have been a number of conspiracy theories that have been true, and of course, many that are preposterous and have been shown to be false. So we have a really hard time talking about conspiracies in general without our brains turning to mush in one way or another. I like to do it simply by noting that powerful people have interests and they work hard to make those interests come true, which is also not the same thing as saying that we didn't land on the moon or that the earth is flat. At any rate, In my conversation with Jesse Walker about his book, I suggested that there might be one more category to add to his taxonomy, perhaps even two, depending on how you slice it. And those two, or one, were, and this is the most compelling one to me personally, the one I'd wager on the most if I had to, to be more fact than theory, That's the simulation hypothesis, and it's kissing cousin, the Truman Show conspiracy. The Truman Show one is the one I'll be spending a lot of this episode talking about, and I'm going to get into some very interesting territory here, no doubt, with everything from 
breaking out of the shell to the simulacra to log odds. I will explain all of those things as we go. Both of these theories, the simulation hypothesis and the Truman Show conspiracy, posit that we live in a synthetic or constructed reality of some kind. In the case of the simulation theory, this may be a universe that is a shared construct, like in the Matrix, or every one of us might live in our own personal simulation that is made just for us. It's worth noting that if this theory is correct, the architect of the simulation, from our perspective, is going to look a lot like God, or at least a God. And note that religion itself is the ultimate enemy above conspiracy, though it can be mixed with the benevolent conspiracy. In other words, God loves you and is willing to sacrifice for your soul on the one side, but also don't cross him or he will burn your city to the ground and condemn you to an eternity of hellfire. That might be the enemy above side of God. As you'd, from the lens of conspiracy theories, as categorized by Jesse Walker. For the case of The Matrix, I should note, for those who do not know, The Truman Show was a movie in which the main character is a newborn adopted by a company that creates a reality TV show around his life. Everywhere he goes is on set, and everyone he interacts with is an actor. But this fact is hidden from Truman until he begins to figure it out. The god figure in the Truman Show is the beret-wearing sociopath Kristoff, brilliantly played by Ed Harris with just the right level of creepiness and malice. The main character, if you don't know uh, Truman himself, is played by Jim Carrey, also a, a brilliant portrayal by Jim Carrey. In the movie, there seem to be digressing a bit here, two kinds of roles that Jim Carrey plays, the ones that he, which he absolutely inhabits it and nails it, and the ones in which he most definitely doesn't and falls on his face. This is one of the ones that he nails. Getting back to The Truman Show, it turns out that the belief that you are living in something like the universe of The Truman Show is actually fairly common among paranoid people, which makes sense as Truman conspiracy isn't that far removed from the idea that a powerful cabal is watching you all the time and trying to control your behavior, maybe even your mind. Once you add in a large dash of voyeurism to the idea that secret agents are tracking your every move and hiding the truth from you, you basically have the Truman conspiracy. And again, in the spirit of the show, in terms of entertaining of possibilities whenever possible in a non-judgmental way, in an evaluative and instead of moralistic way, I'd simply note that, of course, just because you are paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you, but also oh, it doesn't mean they are either. The Truman Show movie is about how this conspiracy begins to unravel, but it's mostly about how it's constructed until he breaks out of the literal shell that they have constructed around him. Truman's world is a simulacra, and his actions are taken in reaction to what look like real people 
doing real things in a real town, but everyone is an actor and all of the buildings are paper thin thin facade that hides a reality, but it is the reality that there's nothing behind it. This is a simulacra in the direct Baudelarian sense. Joan James Boldyard, and uh, oh my God, did I just butcher his name, is the author of a book called Simulacra and Simulation, which lent a lot of ideas to the Matrix trilogy. To try to explain that idea of the simulacra versus simulation, Sea Haven, the town Truman inhabits, isn't a Potemkin village. Those were the villages in the Soviet Union that were set up for visitors so that when they arrived and looked around and wandered through a town, it would look like Russia was a prosperous, thriving, flourishing country because they had taken all of the goods from everywhere around them and put them all in this one little village. So all of the stores appeared chock full of goods and everything was freshly painted and washed and the streets were sweeped. But that covered up the fact that all throughout Russia, things were decaying and there wasn't enough food for everyone or goods generally. But by creating a Potemkin village, they could concentrate what they did have on this single point and make it look like they were a much nicer place than they were. The Truman Show city, village, Sea Haven, isn't that, nor is it a shiny white veneer that covers up stained and rotting teeth. Truman's town is a veneer laid on top of nothing. It may have been modeled after, after some kind of New England small town life, but ultimately his world references only itself. The simulacra is the artifact for Truman. This veneer, at least until he begins to figure it out, is reality. So do we ourselves live in a Truman Show-like world? Is the Truman Show conspiracy true in any sense? And if so, how would we evaluate that claim? Or if we live in a simulation of the more deist kind, where a programmer has set the odds for all kinds of things, either explicitly or implicitly, and then that god went away, then the best thing we can do as humans is try to figure out what those odds are as a guide to living uh, in alignment with reality, or at least the reality of the simulation we are in. However, if we live in the Truman Show kind of situation or in a simulation that isn't like the Matrix, then our world is carefully curated. We have some kind of Kristoff or Kristovs who, on an ongoing basis, present us with some version of a faked reality. In the Matrix, they have the Matrix, and that exists in order to uh, manage the people who are plugged into it, and there is an architect of that who can change things around, upgrade the matrix, and control things. These upgrades are intended to manipulate reality in a way that will help control the, the citizens of the matrix. In the Truman Show, Truman has been conditioned to fear a boat ride out of safe haven that would bring him to the fake horizon. And when he finally overcomes this fear and takes to the water, the show's director makes the water, that very water that he's sailing out on, artificially dangerous by changing the weather with a fake storm. 
Truman's reality is bent to conform with the fake perception that they want him to have about the world around him. Note that your parents almost certainly did that very thing. Before I get to that, though, note that this phenomenon of bending reality and creating inflated fears, false fears, is a phenomenon that exists not just among human beings, but in the animal kingdom itself. We have bugs that look poisonous and sometimes aren't, moths that are patterned, patterned to look like snakes that peer out from the branches of a tree, and of course, camouflage is so common as to seem unremarkable, but it, it is worth remarking that camouflage is the creation of a fake reality, one that hides the truth of an animal's existence. In some sense, it is simulated, reality simulated, but not a simulacra in that there is an underlying reality there of a creature that is simply not as deadly or as visible as it would seem. Humans, though, are the masters of this kind of reality manipulation. And to get back to your parents, did you believe in Santa Claus when you grew up? If you did, you are like millions and millions of other kids who were told this boogeyman existed in order to in order to tell you a story that was entertaining, but also to scare you into being good. He knows when you whether you are good or not. So be good for goodness sake or for the sake of the gifts that you would get if you are good, because that's how Santa rolls. This is not unique to Western Christian culture. These kinds of boogeymen, who eat bad kids uh, or do even more extreme things have existed throughout history in a wide variety of cultures. Parents seem to have universally arrived upon the solution of scaring their kids with imaginary creatures that will do them harm unless they obey. Though in the case of Santa Claus, the harm is just giving them coal instead of presents, kind of like a mixture of the benevolent conspiracy and the uh, not-so-benevolent one. But this is actually a common pattern of compliance to create a mythical creature or universe or final destination, and this might upset some of you to think so, if so, and if you've seen the movie The Matrix, think about how hard it is in the simulation to get people to see what's behind the curtain, to get them to take the red pill. Our beliefs are completely tied up with our identities, and to give up on a belief is to give up a piece of our identity for many people. I understand that, though I also see the value of identities that are driven mostly by the belief that is not necessarily grounded in reality, uh, a fake. I should note that while it's clear that certain religious beliefs are useful to those who hold power in exactly the same way that an all-seeing North Pole resident rewards good kids is useful to parents, that's not to say that I'm dismissing all views of a creator as wrong because they are motivated. 
if we live in a simulated universe of one kind or another, which is, as I say, the view I find very compelling, or at least very hard to dismiss, then there is a, a god or gods from our frame of view who architected our world. That's them. For my own part, I try not to link my identity to beliefs so much as the hygiene of my processes, trying to be a good thinker at the meta level, which means taking seriously any idea that has strong evidence to support it, especially when I can't find any clear reason why it must be false. But getting back to the idea that humans construct false realities for each other and not just that we are scaring children, I should note that much of our political regime consists of creating these false realities. I mentioned Potemkin villages in Russia. That is a fairly dramatic and concrete example of that. But a lot of the times those fake realities are built up on the psychological plane more than in terms of having a direct concrete manifestation in as in the village that appears to be in great shape, but is actually hiding the fact that the country is decaying. One of the things that drives the creation of a false reality, or in the extreme case of the Truman Show, a, a completely synthetic reality, is that when you have what might be called a system or the cathedral, and I can't take credit for either of those terms or analogies, but I'll do my best to explain them. When that happens, then, well, a few things happen. Let's start actually with an explanation of what the role of various branches of government, of political power and entities like journalistic outlets, outlets is supposed to be in a free and open society. These are supposed to be competing institutions that exist to guard our liberty and our ability to pursue truth, happiness, and the American way. But we know that people lie. We know that those in power will always want to create real or psychological Potemkin villages to hide their failures, cover up their misdeeds. So the role of these other competing institutions is to help is to help keep them in check so if the president for example says i am not a crook you have a free press ideally to show otherwise to unravel reality and demonstrate that in the case of that ex-president yes indeed he was a crook a particularly nasty one in terms of spying on the opposition party Fortunately, of course, that would never happen again in our country. Uh, but the U.S. ideally works as a kind of Scooby-Doo nation. We accept that bad people will always be with us and that those bad people will do bad things and then try to hide them with subterfuge. Though, depressingly, in the real world, very few schemes are hidden by pretending to be a ghost. Chalk that up to just another way in which our childhoods misled us. And speaking of which, how much did you worry about quicksand as a kid versus how much time you spend actually dealing with it as an adult? But getting back to the idea of the Scooby-Doo nation ideal, it 
requires two conditions to work, and I will get into each of those after the break. Stick with me on Keystalk FM 96.9 and 102.5. Scooby-Dooby-Doo, here are you. You're ready and you're willing. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking today about a particularly interesting kind of conspiracy theory, the Truman Show conspiracy modeled after the film The Truman Show with Jim Carrey, an excellent movie, uh, by the way. In that movie, an infant is adopted by a corporation which wraps an entire community around him and creates a reality TV show in which he is the only participant who does not know that everything around him is scripted and fake and everyone around him is an actor and everything around him is part of a set. I was talking about how we ideally have a society that functions a little bit like Scooby-Doo Nation, where we recognize that people do bad things and try to hide them, but we have other institutions that are not necessarily with a mystery van filled with hippies and a dog solving mysteries, but nonetheless institutions that will root out this wrongdoing, uncover it, expose it, pull the hood off of the head of what looks like a ghost and reveal it to be the guy who is then says, "Ah, and I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids. This idea, the one of the meddling kids running around, this Scooby-Doo nation ideal requires two conditions. The first is that you cannot have a system, a singular system, or the cathedral that I alluded to earlier, where all of the parts are essentially working together as one whole. You don't have competing institutions in that case. You have a a, a singular institution. The other condition is that people have to recognize reality when it spits them in the face. And this last one may be a little tricky to understand because I think we all grow up with the assumption that if we are shown the truth, we will recognize the truth. This is not at all true, though, to understand how this ends up happening, psychologically at least. Imagine a sports league. In fact, let's compare two sports leagues, the MMA world of UFC fighting and the professional wrestling world of Hulk Hogan and The Undertaker and whoever it is nowadays who is putting on spandex and getting in the ring as a professional wrestler, professional being in uh, quotes there. The UFC model depends on the idea that if you learn the outcome of a fight was predetermined, if you learned that the fix was in, you would reject the outcome. You would reject the validity of the fight itself. You, a watcher of MMA, have a vested interest in fairness and recognizing underlying reality. This is true even if you are a partisan for the UFC to hold value as a 
world of meritocratic fighting, even the people who support Khabib need to be outraged if they learn that he only won because his opponent took a dive. This is where we get the famous saying from baseball of the little kid who wanted to know that Shoeless Joe didn't throw a game, that he wasn't cheating, and the kid says, say it ain't so, Joe. The idea being that he, the, the kid hopes that it's, the fix is not in, but he does want to know whether or not it is because he, he cannot worship a, a false idol, a person, if they are a participant in, in fraud in a faked game. So either way, we want to believe that our heroes are real, but also we do, we do want to know the truth one way or another, and we will recognize it. At least in a properly functioning Scooby-Doo nation, we, we can handle the truth, or we decide that we can handle the truth. In the world of professional wrestling, by contrast, the professional wrestling of Hulk Hogan, we understand either implicitly or explicitly that everything is fake. It's what's called kayfabe, but either we don't care or we actively enjoy the fiction. In that construct, we actually will run away from anyone who wants to burst the bubble or illusion. If we are particularly into a match, we are exercising our suspension of disbelief and fully in it. And if the person next to us says, hey, you know, this is all fake, uh, we won't stop to consider that idea and all of its implications and let it distract from our enjoyment of the fight. Instead, what we'll probably do is turn around and say, hey, shut up. I'm watching the fight. Let me enjoy it in peace. Whether or not we are fully clued in to the fabricated nature of the match, we don't really want to know. It gets in the way of our enjoyment of the game. For Scooby-Doo Nation to work, what we need people who, who do actually care about the truth, not people who are just treating society or politics like they're watching a professional wrestling game and all that matters is that they get a good story and hopefully the good guys from their point of view, the people that they're rooting for, win. And there isn't anything like a sanctity of the game or any desire to make sure that things aren't rigged. In fact, in the the kind of kayfabe perspective, it's great if things are rigged because this way you can create better stories, and if you are on the same side as the producers of the event in terms of who should win, then you know you get the people who you want to win, you get to see them win, and you get to see the other side vanquish, perhaps even humiliatingly so. So how does this apply to the real world that we actually live in? The I believe that we've broken down on both of these conditions that we have kind of a uniparty, a singular system where all of the institutions are working together hand in hand, not necessarily in a back room kind of uh, way where they're smoking cigars and deciding on the future, but they share the same 
ends. In other words, it's no more a conspiracy than, say, the United States itself is a conspiracy. If you want to take an interesting dive of history, actually, it's worth noting how much of the birth of the United States was, well, was a conspiracy. But at any rate, you need these to these competing institutions, and you need people who are willing to recognize reality, even if that reality contradicts the narrative that they would like to believe or that they would like to promote. I don't think we have either of those conditions right now. If you are looking for the evidence that we don't, just look at how the last president, before the one before this one, was set up by a political rival and three-letter agencies were weaponized against him and his administration, his agenda, was crippled by these people and his party likely lost a majority in Congress all over fabricated allegations, again, by a political rival. All of this is public knowledge, but for a huge segment of the country, and this might include you as well, it certainly includes almost all of the elites, it doesn't really matter that this happened, and they're not very interested in pulling the hood off the ghost and looking at this, it matters no more than it matters that the WWF matches are scripted. In fact, what matters is that the good guys win and that in this case, the, the malfeasance was the benefit. The, the wrong was the right in, in this sense. And the only injustices that need to be righted are the ones that go against this elite group. I've used this analogy a number of times, but when you have a system, then reality is kind of like a Harlem Globetrotters game. It may have some superficial resemblance to a real basketball game, but the outcome is preordained and the refs aren't biased, they are employed. The individual players may seek their own glory, but everyone is ultimately working for the Harlem Globetrotters franchise. And note how interesting it is that these kinds of synthetic games, the Harlem Globetrotters or the WWF, seem nonetheless to always have referees, not just as an additional kind of actor on the stage who can be played off, but also to create the illusion that this is an actual meritocratic contest that is being judged properly. Maybe you can think about the role that fact-checkers play in our current system and see if there are any parallels there. But either way, what's being constructed ends up looking a lot like the Truman Show It is a universe that you inhabit in which things happen that appear to be unscripted, but they aren't. They, the narrative, the thing, the information that you're fed is the information that is convenient to the people who are doing the scripting, or in the case of our reality, it might be more proper to say it tempting to do the scripting or to drive a a wedge between actual reality and your beliefs about reality. One of the wonderful moments from the Truman Show is when he's driving along and 
a lamp from very high up in the sky breaks off of the ceiling there, the scaffolding that it's attached to, the catwalk, I think that that's what that's called, and it crashes down to the street in front of him, and he gets out of his car, and he looks at it, and he thinks, oh, this looks like there was a light up there in the sky. How could that be? He's very confused, as one might be, but as soon as he turns on the radio in his car, he gets a message about how a plane has just lost some of its landing gear and that smashed down onto the street and then other people are talking about that and then the next day's newspaper has an article that reinforces that idea. All of the institutions around him reinforce the fake idea that what he saw was not a spotlight that had fallen off of the movie set he was on and it crashed down to the ground. It was instead a piece of a plane that had fallen off. And these techniques, of course, can be extremely powerful if everyone around you, if the system is telling you one thing, even if your initial assessment of reality would be, hey, this looks a lot like a spotlight of some kind, the system is going to be so strong and overpowering and and if everyone around you is telling you a different narrative and that narrative is upheld consistently then you might start to doubt your own your own lion eyes your own eternal evaluation and then of course if you don't have competing institutions who are going to inspect what happened provide alternative viewpoints take a look at what fell and declare that oh yeah it does actually look like a, a street light if those institutions don't exist or they have no power or the people who are running the truman show who of course have no interest in the truth getting out if they are able to censor, diminish, marginalize this alternative information, then, you know, then, then they're doing a cover-up operation. So what's going on here? What you have in the Truman Show and in the Truman Show conspiracy is an attempt to drive a wedge between perception and reality in that and that wedge becomes much easier to to create and also to sustain when you have those two conditions that I discussed, that uh, the system is unified and speaks with one voice and work together, or at least they all have a shared goal in terms of the narrative that they want to promote. And you also have people who are more interested in watching an MMA fight and seeing their good guys win. I'm sorry, a WWF fight uh, a kayfabe situation than in seeing the best fighter win and seeing the refs ref in an equal, objective, fair way. That's not what they want. There's one more piece of the puzzle here, and I don't think that this one was or is constructed intentionally in the way that obviously you have a group of people who are intentionally trying to drive uh, the same narrative right now, or you have uh, people who are intentionally ignoring the truth. 
this other piece of the puzzle, and I'll have to get to it when we get back from the break, has to do with how we understand risk, probability, and odds. Stick with me here on Keystalk FM 96.9 and 102.5. Welcome back to the radio show on Keystalk FM. I am talking directly to you today, no guest with me. Uh, I'm talking about a particularly interesting conspiracy theory, to me at least, the idea that we live in a Truman Show-like reality and that there has been a divergence between our perceived reality and our actual reality, especially as of late. I note that this is actually a common thing among human beings. We do this to our own kids with things like Santa Claus, invented creatures of sorts to scare our kids. My contention is that we are now doing this as a societal level, and I posit two things that are causing this to happen, or the lack of which is causing this to happen. And by the way, if you have missed any of this episode. Every episode is podcasted afterwards. You can go to mattasher.com slash 2022 to catch the whole episode. So there's one more piece, and I don't think that it's intentional in any way. It's not a conspiracy to make it how it is. But I think that a lot of people have opportunistically taken advantage of a blind spot that we have that has evolved among human beings in terms of how we understand risk. There will be some probability here, probability theory that I will be talking about, but I'm going to stay as far away from any kind of detailed math as I can when it comes to this. What I'm going to talk about is what is our sweet spot in terms of understanding probabilities or risks, and where does that breakdown and how could we how could we get to a place where we understand probability better especially outside of that sweet spot i think that the our very understanding of probability and risk has been handicapped we are in a sense like the ancients who had to do algebra without the concept of zero uh, as in working with roman noodles these things can be done and amazing things were done with the primitive tools but we couldn't have any aspects of the modern world like calculus with advan- without advances in in the concepts that we use to understand math i, I want to you to focus on how you think of risk or probability. That might be in terms of percentages, like what is the chance of rain on Thursday, next Thursday? My app says that that's 30% here in my part of the keys. Those kind of percentages work fairly well for things in the middle of the spectrum. Most free throw percentages, for example, are, say, 65 to 85. The unemployed 
unemployment rate is about 5%, which is about half as much as the unemployment rate in European countries, many of them. And if you toss a perfect coin, that's going to be a 50-50 chance. Uh, a baseball player might get a hit 30% of the time, which is confusingly expressed as having a batting average of 30 300. But nonetheless, we don't have a hard time conceptualizing the idea that a batter will get on base about about one-third of the time, or once in every three at-bats. At the fringes, though, we are awful at percentages because percentages is the wrong way to express these. For example, your chance of getting into a fatal crash on a commercial flight is 0.000005%, if I got the right number of zeros there. But what does that mean as a percentage? It probably means almost nothing to you. To understand risk anywhere outside of the sweet spot of about 5 to 95%, I need to take us through an entirely different way to understand probabilities, one that you all should have learned while growing up, in my opinion, but, but didn't. Uh, as I say, I'm not going to do a deep dive into the uh, math of that. If uh, you're interested in that, go to, as I say, mattasher.com slash 2022, and I'll link to a paper that explains this in great and glorious detail. But for now, I'm just going to argue that the right way to understand probabilities, especially for values outside of that sweet spot, is to use something called log odds. These are expressed in something called decibels, which share some similarities as a scale with the way that we uh, measure noises. As I say, I'm not going to go deep into the math behind it, but I'm, I'm going to go into some of the some examples to show how this works, starting with the midpoint, the 50-50 point. In this scale, it is zero. A perfect coin toss comes in at zero decibels as the chance of getting heads and as the chance of getting tails. 10, as in a 10 dB event, is an event that is nine-tenths certain to happen. So a good free throw player has a 10 dB chance of making any particular throw from the foul line. And note that each additional 10 decibels is an additional tenfold increase in the chance that uh, something will happen. There is a, a little bit of a caveat there, but you can just think of that as every 10 decibels up is a tenfold increase in the chance that it will happen. Your chance of surviving a commercial flight to get back to that example is 70 decibels. It is extremely high. That was that uh, 0.00005 chance. Think about that, how, how nice that is to wrap your head around 70 dB instead of that awful percentage as your margin of safety. And because this measure uh, is symmetric, your chance of dying on that flight is negative 70 dB. These ways of doing things, this log odds way, is much better than percentages for general rules of thumb. Like, you should probably not worry too much about anything as a risk that's, uh, that's lower than negative 60 dB, unless this is something that you are doing over and over and over again, 
or if the consequences of something going wrong, if this does go wrong, are extremely, extremely bad. And if you really want to freak yourself out, do a look at what the scientists thought about the percentage chance that the atmosphere of the U.S. would get ignited when they uh, set off the first atomic bomb. But to get back to this idea of using the dB scale as a general way to see what are the risks you do or don't have to worry about, just to put this in perspective, if you are around my age, your overall chance of dying on any given day is about negative 45 dB, which is significantly higher than your risk while you're flying. Maybe if you're in particularly good shape, your overall mortality rate is about negative 55 dB per day still. Note that's much higher than your risk on a commercial flight. So just living is more risky than flying on a plane. Note for a moment how well this scale works. To go a little bit even more extreme, if you are an 80-year-old male, your overall chance of kicking the bucket in a given year is about the same as Russian roulette, one in six or about negative seven dB. Your chance of surviving the year is seven dB. If you, and now to bring it back around to something that has had a huge wedge driven between reality and perception over the past couple years, if you get COVID, your chances of dying with it are about negative 10 dB. That's if you are an 80-year-old male. If you should probably steer clear of that, if you are such an 80-year-old male, though you might not want to isolate yourself from family for year after year, your COVID-carrying grandson is still less likely to kill you than life itself at that age. Being old is dangerous. Think for a moment about all of the conversations that we could have had if from the very beginning of the pandemic we were talking about relative risks on a scale scale that we could make sense of and we could say that my margin of safety on any given day as far as the risk from the disease is 60 to 70 db i'm really not going to worry that about that very much if i'm young and healthy uh, on the other hand, we, of course, might not want to take on incremental risks if uh, we are facing a disease that has uh, really only a 10 decibel margin of survivability, which would be the case if we were uh, very old. That would be, as I say, something slightly better than Russian roulette. It's something we should stay away from. It's just much easier intuitively to manage these kinds of risks and be sane about them if we are able to keep in our head the baseline levels of risk that we face uh, every day just uh, living from all the various things that can do us in. We really have a very hard time understanding these because our tools for understanding risk are just so primitive, as I say, in the way that using Roman numerals to do math or not having a zero made uh, doing math, especially complex, sophisticated mathematical calculations, very hard before we had uh, invented better, better number system. One of the hardest things to do is to try to see what's missing from a picture and then what are the implications of that missing thing. What I'm 
arguing here and, and trying to do is say that we are missing a key piece to understanding the world, and that is a way to deal with and understand probabilities, and in particular the risks that we face, that isn't percentages, because those percentages, as I mentioned with the chance that you are going to die in a commercial plane flight, those are very hard to wrap our minds around, and they're very hard to compare. It's like saying, oh, that would have had five zeros before the number, this one had six, what does that mean? You, you get lost in it, and it loses its resonance, and it makes it harder to live your life in a normal fashion. And it means that we also end up spending a lot of money and a lot of time on risks that are really, what are tail risks, that are risks that are in that range of the chances that it would happen is negative uh, 60, negative 70B. These are one in a million, one in 10 million type occurrences. These are win the lottery, get struck by lightning kind of events. And as I say, it's not that one should encourage these events to happen if they're going to be catastrophic. Of course, if they're going to be positive, you might want to encourage them, uh, but you wouldn't spend all of your money on the lottery because increasing your chances of winning from negative 70 dB to negative 65 dB or negative 60 dB by investing your life savings in a particular uh, jackpot draw, that's just not a wise thing to do. A lot of the conversations that we have about these kind of things could be cut short, simplified, and we could have a much more rational approach to both the upsides and the downsides of life if we could have these kinds of conversations in a shorthand way, understand what they mean. And as I say, that that aspect of resonance, it, it's really important. If you just think about the difference between describing a risk that is, as I say, 0.005 versus wrapping your head around the idea that that's a negative 65 dB event and that's not much to worry about. This seems particularly important when we're talking about risks that are just substituting one for another. If you are an average driver, the risk of dying while driving across the country in an accident, that's a, you know, that's about a negative 55 dB risk that you're facing. So uh, it's small, but it's significant, and most notably, it's more significant than flying in a plane. So it's one thing to tell a person that they have this really, really low percentage chance of dying in a plane crash and a low percentage chance of dying uh, in a drive across the country and then just leave them to try to figure out what that looks like. It's another to say that there's a 10 dB difference. There's a, a tenfold or fivefold, if you are a good driver difference, between the two modes of transportation. And so you should choose accordingly.